Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And today I am going to take you on a journey through the early days of Niles, Michigan. And I'll be referring to a book written by Ralph Ballard in 1948 called Tales of Early Niles. Now, Niles, Michigan is over in Berrien County, and I've been doing a lot of the early histories of uh, cities and places around uh, Berrien County this year. And the stories that I'm going to be reading from today comes from this book, and it's in the chapter called Stories of the Bertrand Road. So come along and join me. So once again, this is written by Ralph Ballard, and he published this in 1948. So this chapter begins, In 1829, Justice Walling and Lacey laid out the village of Niles, and the plat was registered. Niles was born as a village and was ready to grow. Plans were in the making for a grist mill. The Dwajak was to be harnessed, and the power brought into the town by a race three-quarters of a mile long. Now, what he's talking about there is the Dwajak is a river in the area, and a race is a channel that they build between rivers or between bodies of water to create a faster, rapid flow of water, and it's used for milling in the water mill area. So a lot of the early towns around southwest Michigan were founded on the establishment of a milling race of some kind, unless they had a river that had a fast-flowing body of water or something like that that allowed for the turning of the water wheels in the milling operation. So some communities were built on sections of the river that had a rapids or a fast section of the river, and others built their own through use of a mill race. And then he goes on, a dam was talked of, and many other things were projected for the little village by the St. Joe. Accomplishment was to come only after years of planning about the fireplace in Obed Lacey's Grocery and General Store at the foot of Main Street, where they met on Saturday nights to talk things over. 1834 came, and while the village had grown, it only numbered 26 houses, and these were, for the most part, on Main Street or north of it. A little bunch of Presbyterians, lonely for the church associations to which they were accustomed, were building a church on 4th Street south of Broadway, though all east and south of the location was yet a primeval forest. To the west, reaching to the river, and north to Main Street, the land had been cleared and planted to corn. Looking up the river from the location of the present Broadway Bridge, it seemed lonely enough as though it might never have known the presence of a white man. The islands were there, three of them, one close by the western shore, which in later years was to become Castor's Island from a man named Castor who owned it and pastured his cows there. It is Island Park now since the Woman's Progressive League bought it and gave it to the city for use as a park. Another island just above Island Park became Weaver Island for a man named Weaver built a house there. A lovely place for a house, only sometimes the water would rise suddenly, sending him scuttling for higher land. It is known as French's Island now, for French's owns it. And over on the east side of the river, 
with just a little channel separating it from the bank, was a third island. In 1834, it was just another island without a name, but when the town grew enough so that people began to want a place to go picnicking and began to look around for a convenient spot, the island seemed the ideal place to go. By that time, the place had ceased to be an island, for a great storm had caused a washout somewhere near Bond Street, and the little channel had washed full, making it a part of the mainland. There was, though, one place, probably fed by springs, where the water spread out to form a little pond, which was called Eden's Eddy. In the winter, when the thermometer would get away down toward zero and the ice would grow thick and safe, it was a famous place for skating, and the boys and girls would go down and build fires on the ice, which would give them light to see by, and also a place where they could warm themselves when they got cold. And many happy hours were spent there skating on Eden's Eddy. Wow. Creating a fire on an ice pond while you're skating on it, that is uh, something you don't hear of every day. Eden's Eddy is now just a weedy pond, the haunt of frogs and turtles. On the bluff where the engine house and police station now stand, there used to be a house which was occupied by one Benjamin Y. Collins, better known as Benny Collins. I don't know whether he built the house or not. At any rate, he lived there. The house was later known as the F.C. Schmidt House, and all the little Schmidts grew up there. A happy-go-lucky, carefree bunch with old Mary Cannon as hired girl and general factotum. Anyway, Benny lived there and I think died there. He came to Niles in 1834 with a kit of cobbler tools looking for a location and started a shoe shop, which eventually grew to be for that time, quite an emporium employing 15 cobblers, and he stayed in business for 15 years. He and the other shoemakers of the town built a tannery at Dickerville, which was near Waterville, of which the Niles Democrat has this to say. The Niles Shoemakers Union carry on here an extensive tanning business, and judging from appearances, business is made to move rapidly along. Hemlock bark is used in the tannery, taken from a large tract of land in the vicinity owned by the Union. A small stream of water from Living Springs passes through it, which is used by the tannery. About 1849, Benny started in the brick business. His clay came from the west side of the river, south of Clay Street. Here he built his kilns and baked his brick. The mounds along the riverbank just north of the entrance to Island Park are not, as some suppose, mound builders' works, but are the refuse from the brickyards of B.Y. Collins. Some of the finest buildings in Niles were built of brick made in the Collins yards. Taken all in all, Mr. Collins was a remarkable man and did much for the upbuilding of his hometown. But he was a man who had the idiosyncrasies. Among others, he had an irritable disposition. His wife, a little mild-tempered woman, learned to respect his fits of temper, and when she would see him coming in one of them, she would run for her bedroom and lock herself in, leaving him to vent his anger on the dishes, the furniture, or whatever came to hand. On one occasion, he had loaded his dump cart with a heavy load of bricks and started for a small building that he had reached the middle of the bridge at the foot of the Broadway Hill, and there the pin that held the box in place worked out and up went the box and dumped the whole load. Anger overpowered him and seizing a brick in each hand, he waded in and hammered them until not a whole brick was left in his load. 
Then he gathered the pieces and threw them vengefully over the railing into the river below, where they remain to this day. But one day, Benny was sick. He didn't feel like going to work, and with his red flannel nightgown wrapped closely around him, he decided he would stay in bed and maybe sleep off his indisposition. His neighbor, just over the fence, kept chickens, and among them was a big rooster that felt his importance and proposed that the world should know about it. He crowed and crowed and got up on the fence and crowed and finally got down on the Collins side of the fence and flapped his wings and crowed even louder. Every time he crowed, old Benny got madder until, clad only in his nightgown, which he lifted high, as to not impede his leg action, he sallied forth with vengeance on the unwary rooster. What a chase it was, up and down the cabbage rows, through the sweet corn and the gooseberries that scratched his legs unmercifully. Until at last the frightened, hard-impressed bird saw a chance and darted under the house, which it stood up off the ground in a little way. But Benny was close behind, and under the house he went, hunching himself along through the dead leaves and trash until well along when he found himself unable to go any farther. And when he attempted to back up, he couldn't do that either. He was hopelessly stuck. His shirt had caught on a nail, and try as he would, he couldn't get loose. His only alternative was to yell for help, which he did, but for some time, no one heard him, and at last his wife thought she heard something and located him. Then the problem was how to get him out, which was finally solved by taking up some of the floorboards and fishing him out. Scratched, dirty, covered with cobwebs, and in a general mess, he crawled back into his bed, content for once at least to let the rooster crow. If we stroll along up the river on the old CW and M track on the right is the island, and it was here that they used to hold their picnics and celebrations. To get to it, one left Broadway just at the end of the bridge. I remember about 1880 when they held the GAR state encampment there. What a spectacle it was with posts from all over the state with bright uniforms and much bedecked officers with colors flying, the fife and drum corps playing, madly those old favorite tunes, Yankee Doodle and The Girl I Left Behind Me. Then there was the parade with the brass bands and major drums with their tall bisbees and staffs and the officers riding proudly at the head of their troops. The GAR, by the way, is the Grand Army of the Republic. They were the veterans organization of the day for uh, Civil War veterans. They were actually the first veterans organization in the country. And they used to hold uh, regional meetings in their various states. And Michigan had quite a number of GAR chapters. And apparently they held the... Uh, annual one in Niles that year. He goes on to say that the governor and his staff were present, and there were speeches and fireworks in the evening and a grand time generally. And there was a poor woman sitting on a stump holding a fretful baby to which she was feeding peanuts, and as the baby had no teeth with which to chew them, she was chewing them, and when they were all well chewed, was stuffing them into the mouth of the eager infant. What, oh what, would our present-day authorities on child culture say to that? The island was a favorite place for us to go during the noon hour when we were going to school, and we used to shoot at a mark with a little Derringer pistol that Hugh Edwards owned. Among the bunch was 
Elgin Dodge. His name was Horace Elgin, and he didn't like the Horace, so he was called Elgin. Later, he and his brother John moved to Detroit, and while there, got into the automobile business. It is said that they were inventors of the original Ford engine. At any rate, they were in business with Henry Ford. But dissolved partnership, and there was much litigation to determine who was the inventor of the engine. John was older than Elgin, and he used to work around his father's machine shop, which was located up near the Michigan Central Passenger Depot. That was when the old high-wheel bicycles came in fashion, and John was too poor to buy one, but he made one himself that was just as good as those as the other boys that had paid $100 or $200 for. Neither one of the boys was much in school, but when anything in the line of machinery was involved, they were there in their element and did fine work. Elgin was a red-headed, freckle-faced little tough, not afraid of anything, and could whip his weight in wildcats. He was inclined to be more or less of a bully and was not any too popular among his schoolmates. I think they left town around 1880 or 81, and we didn't hear much about them until they became famous in the auto industry. They used to come back once in a while to visit and were very kindly and helpful to some of their old friends, among them Mr. J.S. Tuttle, who had been their Sunday school teacher. And when financial difficulties overtook them, they stood by and helped him out. They wanted at one time to do something for their old town. Their idea was a park system to take advantage of the Nile's beautiful river frontage. And they would have done it, but certain, but certain residents were so afraid it would raise their taxes and made such a fuss about it that the Dodge brothers became disgusted with the whole project and withdrew their offer. When the railroad came, it ruined the island, for it went right through the middle of it and it was abandoned. A little farther up the river is where Bond Street comes down and crosses Silverbrook, where it ripples down to meet the river. This was called Bond Street from the Bond family, who laid out the Bond addition to the city of Niles, which takes in the land east of the hill. Judge Bond was a New Hampshire man who came to Lockport, New York in 1815 and became one of its founders. In 1834, he came to Niles, accompanied by his two sons, George N. and Henry, who bought land and laid out the portion of the city known as Bond's Addition. This was the road to South Bend in those days, though not much of a road, just a ruddy trail along the river. At the foot of Bond Street Hill, a distillery was erected by William McComber, which provided the wherewithal for many a high time when whiskey was considered one of the necessities of life. The clear waters of Silver Brook were used in the business. The distillery was destroyed by fire and was not rebuilt. A man named Hess used to net sturgeon here in the river and kept them impounded in Silver Brook by making a fence of poles driven in the bed of the stream. He took the eggs from the fish and shipped them to Russia for caviar. A little farther down, near the east end of the present bridge, David Brown, on July 4, 1878, started a grist mill and ran it for a number of years, but eventually moved it to the foot of Broadway Hill, just north of the approach to the bridge. It was destroyed by fire about 1890. Just south of this mill was a mill owned by Gitchell and Payne. It was a furniture factory to begin with and was later changed to a woolen mill employing a large number of hands, mostly women. On February 15, 1878, it burned to the ground, one of the worst fires in the history of Niles, for the women trapped in the upper story were forced to jump from the windows and many were quite seriously hurt. 
This fire occurred the same year that David Brown opened his grist mill, but at an earlier date. Doubtless his mill would have burned too had it been there at the time of the fire. The Ohio Paper Company mills occupied the land just south of the woolen mill, employing many men. They made straw board from wheat and oat straw, hauled in from the surrounding countryside, and the area east of the race was used as a storage space for the straw until such a time as it could be used in the mill. John L. Reddick and later Carmi R. Smith had the contract for furnishing the straw, and they had a large barn on North Front Street where they kept their teams employed in straw hauling. Often they would send out 40 or 50 teams after the straw, and when they came in loaded with four or five tons of loose straw into a load, it was something. Everybody would have to get out of the road, for they wouldn't turn out for fear of tipping over. Sometimes they would tip over, and then they would take a team from another load and hitch it on the same way from the load that was tipped to a chain, which was attached to the binder, which was a stout pole, put over the top of the load, hooked onto the ladder in the front, and hauled down tight by a windlass at the back end of the load. Then it was up to the team. They were started... And if they stopped soon enough, the load stood upright, but sometimes they were just a bit too long, and then the load would tip over the other way. This was most apt to occur when the man who did the hauling found a place where a farmer who owned the straw stack had a barrel of hard cider and was willing to stand treat. The straw was streamed in great revolving drums and then the process of steaming was done and the drums were opened. The stench from the steamed straw, if the wind was right, spread all over the town to the great annoyance of the populace. This mill, too, burned down and was never replaced. The flat on the east and north side of the site of the present dam was an ideal spot for the Native American encampments, and it was used for that purpose for hundreds of years before the white settlers came. It was here that Antiqueba, the greatest chieftain of the Potawatomi ever had, and the great hereditary sachem of them all, had his village where he would be close to the French mission and the blacksmith who formed part of the mission party. A little farther south on the land, now partially overflowed by the waters of the dam, which raises the level of the river 10 or 12 feet, is the site of Old Fort St. Joseph. And here, Squire Thompson, the first white man with the exception of the French, who had been gone for about 70 years, and McCoy, who established his mission west of the river the preceding year, came to settle in the valley of the St. Joseph. It was 1823, and he had followed the trail made by McCoy from Fort Wayne. Just a faint trace through the wilderness of trees and swamps, and had at last reached the mission where he stayed for a time while he was looking for a location. He chose this land by the river. Just why, we do not know, but probably because it may not have had too much growing upon it, as it had been occupied by the French as a trading post for a century or two. In the time that had elapsed since that occupancy, it probably would not have had much growth, but required clearing off before he planted his corn. He planted three acres, but while he was preparing to plant his crop, a number of Native Americans visited him and tried to intimidate him by telling him that they did not wish him to plant corn as their ponies would break in and destroy it, which would make trouble. Mr. Thompson, after parlaying for a while and reminding them of the various treaties by which the Native Americans had ceded lands, told them coolly that he would raise corn or die. 
At that, they gave him a grunt, saying, much brave, paddled across the river in their canoes, and he was not molested. In the fall, he returned to Ohio for his family, and when he came back, found his crop destroyed by the Native Americans. But he was not to be discouraged, and soon built a cabin to shelter his family, which consisted of a wife and two children. He brought food from Indiana for the winter, and a daughter was born to him at Cary, who was later Mrs. Rachel Weed, the first white child born in the St. Joseph Valley, excepting, of course, the French, who were noted for their large families who had many children here in their settlements beside the river, as the records still preserved indicate. James Kirk came in 1824, and for a while he occupied a house in the same yard as Thompson, but afterwards built a house on the west side of the ravine near the depot. John Lindbrook came to Michigan, arriving in December 1823. He came to assist Squire Thompson in moving, and when first settling, intended to go only 50 or 60 miles, but as circumstances seemed to require it, he came the whole distance and assisted in putting up the log house and getting things ready for winter, which was fairly upon them. But he returned to Ohio in 1824, not, however, to remain, for he started again for Michigan that same year and put in a crop of corn at Indian Fields below Niles, on which is now River Bluff. Squire Thompson was a strong man physically as well as mentally, a jack-of-all-trades, being something of a lawyer, a merchant, farmer, politician, guide, interpreter, hunter, and trapper. But he was not satisfied with his location and was looking for one that suited him better. In 1826, he moved to a place on Pokagon Prairie, just north of Somerville, where he erected a brick house, which is still standing and occupied at the present day. It is said that in 1829, when settlers began to come in more plentifully, that Joseph Bertrand Jr. and Job Brookfield were living here in the big double log house that Thompson had built. There was also several cabins or outhouses and a barn with a thatched roof, which stood under the hill, and there was also a half dozen old apple trees at the place. Bertrand was the son of Joseph Bertrand, the old French trader at the post a few miles up the river, which was named Bertrand in his honor, and Job Brookfield was the man who in 1832 raised a company to fight the Native Americans in the Black Hawk War. His brother, William Brookfield, was a surveyor and did most of the surveying in this part of Michigan and northern Indiana when the country was being opened up for settlement. The apple trees grew on the hillside west of the boulder that marks the site of the fort and were very large and apparently very old trees at the time the first white settlers came. It is probable they were part of the orchard that Louis Chevalier, who was King's man here about 1760 regretted so to leave when he was forced by those high in authority to go to Mishley Mackinac for questioning. When Thompson first broke up his land, he said to have unearthed quantities of relics. They lay in heaps in the fence corners, old gun barrels, flints, and piles of similar articles, which showed that this had been the scene of many hard-fought battles in its day. Old settlers thought the old fort stood up on the highland just south of the boulder monument. The boulder, when it was placed, was not put directly on the spot where the fort had stood, for no one knew just where it was, so a spot was chosen near the road. 
for all of this ground is historic, and whether the monument was on the exact spot or not didn't seem to matter. The record of the first survey made at this place by William Brookfield was this to say Town 7, Range 17 West, beginning at quarter section corner and proceeding west to the south side of section 35, 63.50 rods is in Indian Trail North. This would have been about where Bertrand Road is now. At 78 rods and due north, four rods was an ancient fort in the form of a crescent with banks five feet high and circled with a ditch eight feet wide. The embankment in the form of a crescent has long since been leveled, but we still have the question, was this Fort St. Joseph? It is probable the fort would have been placed so far from the river, which was the route by which they came and went, and it is not possible that this crescent-shaped mound of earth surrounded by its ditch eight feet across, is the remains of some old mound builder's work antedating the French and Indians by hundreds of years. In support of this theory is the fact that while no relics are found around this embankment on the site by the river where Mr. Thompson planted his corn, great quantities have been found, making it probable that this may have been the location of the fort, where but a few steps would separate the voyager from the safety of the fort and where his canoe and all his contents could have easily been carried. In the early times, no one thought much of Indian relics. They were common everywhere. They were picked up and then cast aside as useless, interesting, but hardly worth keeping. To be sure, there were some, like Clement L. Barron and Mrs. Harry Gephardt, who treasured them, but it was not until about 1890 that Fort St. Joseph began to be talked about and people began to wonder just where the old fort had stood, what its history had been, and who had been stationed there, and what had happened there. At about that time, four citizens of Niles became keenly alive to the possibilities of excavation held out as a means of answering some of these questions. These men were Lewis H. Beeson, a member of one of Niles' oldest families, whose father, William H. Beeson, was the assistant surgeon in the Black Hawk War, and he himself had been mayor of Niles. Mr. E. H. Crane, who had all his life been interested in archaeology and kindred subjects, who had studied Native Americans all over the place from Michigan to California, and had a museum at Grand Rapids, and later opened the mounds at Summerfield. And Mr. William Hiles Smith, who was a cement contractor here for many years, and a collector not only of Native American artifacts, but of all sorts of things that were of interest to him. And Mr. E.D. Lombard, who was a retired railroad man who had much the same interest as far as collecting went as Mr. Smith. These men, who had a little society of their own, which was quite exclusive, its motto being, we four and no more, became frequent visitors at the battleground. As it was called, they found much to interest them, but always they would come back to the excavation idea, but at last they got the boys of the town interested. The boys were to provide themselves with sieves in which they were to dig up some of the earth and then take it out of the river and wash it out for relics. This became quite an industry for the boys, for when their luck was good, they found something interesting in their sieves. The four men would buy it from them, 
thus adding to their collections at the same time adding to the boys' store of pocket money. Well, this went on for some time until the Frenches, who owned the property, began to think they were overdoing it and was going to wash away the whole place into the river and put a stop to it. But before that happened, they had found almost an incredible amount of material, much of which can be seen in the Fort St. Joseph Historical Museum, material which shows that this little flat beside the river had been a camping ground and trading place of the Indians for probably hundreds of years, long before the advent of the whites. Flints comprised most of the numerous class of artifacts found, and these were of many types, long slim ones used for drills, all sorts of shapes of arrow points, some of their edges beveled, some that would whirl in flight and make an ugly wound, some with rounded bases for the hunting arrows, and could be drawn from a wound without much effect. Others were barbed bases, which were war arrows, and could not be withdrawn without laceration of the wound and making it worse. Others still were tiny three-cornered points that could be said to be the typical of the Iroquois, and must have been left here when they made some of their bloody raids, in one of which they drove all before them to refugees in Wisconsin, across Lake Michigan, and for more than a decade, Michigan was a land deserted. There were many other types of arrows with many types of bases and points and all equally deadly in the hands of an Indian. And there were spearheads and lanceheads and implements of the same shape, but too large to afford good penetration for spears that were used as knives and scrapers and fish scalers and when attached to handles could be used as hoes and war axes. Then there were the stone implements, axes, some with a groove all the way around and a ridge at each side of the groove, which is called the Michigan axe because it is rarely found outside of our state, some with a groove three-fourths of the way around so that a wedge could be inserted between the axe and the width that bound it to the handle to tighten it. One axe was made of hematite or iron ore. One can't imagine how they shaped it with all the stones to chip it. There are many axes and celts of stones, which have no groove, which may be attached to a handle by withs, or used as an axe or tomahawk, but they were used as skinners to remove the pelt of a deer, or bison, or bear. And there were discordial stones, which were used in games, as were the round ones, which might have been used as war clubs, if wrapped in a piece of buckskin and lashed to a handle or as weights to sink the fishnets. There were pipes of many sorts, large and small, peace pipes of the red pipestone that the Native American used to go so far to get away in Minnesota to the red pipestone quarries that Longfellow made in his Hiawatha. Of the chips that were left from making the peace pipe trinkets, pendants, ambulance, and effigies of the animals they caught in the chase, such as the muskrat and beaver were made. These articles date back to the years of long ago before the white man came to trade and barter with the Native Americans. But then there came a change. The bow and the arrow were giving place to the flintlock gun and the flint implements to implements of iron and steel. This was in later years of the 17th century and the 18th century when the French first appeared on the scene. Then articles that denoted French influence began to make their appearance, and one thing in particular was found in large quantities, brandy bottles, 
or pieces of them, for Brandy was a great civilizing influence with the traders, and if they could get a Native American drunk, they would sell or trade anything he possessed for more whiskey. And there were other things besides brandy bottles. There were copper kettles, which as soon as they began to leak, were useless for cooking purposes, were cut out for other uses, some into three-cornered pieces for arrowheads, and some into pieces that were rolled into little cylinders to attach to the fringe of their garments to tinkle agreeably when they moved. He then goes on to describe that they found little bells of bronze and silver. They also found bullets and all kinds of other artifacts in their excavation uh, that date back to the French period and the interaction with Native Americans and the French. So it's just a very fascinating chapter on the early tales of Niles and some of the early history of some of the people that were involved in the village as well as those that were interested in the archaeology of the time. So very fascinating story by Ralph Ballard. And uh, But that's going to conclude today's episode. A lot of interesting stories of the early days from the early industry to the people and their uh, little experiences. The man that got caught under the house and that whole story that was kind of brought to life just from reading it is very fascinating the man with the rooster anyways that was a kind of funny little bit of a uh, look back in history that uh, is one of those forgotten stories that i love to bring back to life here on tales of southwest michigan's past if you'd like to reach out to me you can find me at michaeldelaware.com i'm always happy to hear from my listeners and if you'd like to get a pre-ordered copy of my upcoming book that's coming out on March 11th and the title of that book is Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime. You can go to my website at michaeldelaware.com and place a pre-order there right away. You can also message me on that website. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners and be sure to follow me on Facebook. I have a Facebook page Michael Delaware Author and you can also find me at Instagram at Michigan History Guy. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. Until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you for listening.